Downloads of the show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is December 19, 2017. Yes, 2017 is coming to a close. By, but this song by the Steve Miller Band back in 1976 speaks to a lot of concerns a lot of people have going into the new year. Oof, 40 frickin' years have gone by and shite hasn't changed one little bit. Time keeps on slipping into the future. Time keeps slipping into the future. Slipping, slipping, slipping. 
revolution yep we're back with fish out of agua on radio free brooklyn yes that was the steve miller band with fly like an eagle from the album fly like an eagle from 1976 yeah isn't that crazy like that song was like written more than 40 years ago and it speaks to so many of the same concerns that we have today i'm not going to get into the lyrics you can google them you can listen to it again but yeah like I said before, 40 frickin' years have gone by and, like, what's changed? All right, maybe one or two things. But some things don't change, and we're going to continue. Some things like music don't change. And we're going to continue on the Wayback Machine with this song, chosen by this week's guest artist for her episode.
We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was The Grateful Dead with Sugar Magnolia from their American Beauty album in 1970. Yeah, it's funny. Back when I was a kid, I used to see carved on the desks at school because kids used to like carve what rock band they liked. And it would be like Led Zeppelin and Yes and The Who and Pink Floyd and Black Sabbath and the Emerson Lincoln Palmer and, and a bunch of others. But the Grateful Dead wasn't really liked. I mean, I totally remember when I was in ninth grade seeing carved into the desk, I'd be grateful if they were dead. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, I guess it was because the hippies were totally over by the time I was in high school. But you know what? Some of that sentiment still lives on. Maybe not in high schools. But as you will see, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! We're doing this in a different locale today, kids. Yes, on location with one of my favorite performers. Yes, I know. Every week I say the person's my favorite, but it's true. Everybody's my favorite. And I'm sitting right now in the warm and lovely kitchen of a woman who's accomplished and amazing and a fantastic storyteller and producer. And her name is Robin Beatty. Hi, Robin. Hi, Michelle. I'm so happy that you wanted to be on Fish Out of Agua. This is a real thrill for me to be interviewing you. I feel honored. So, uh No, I did. I knew I had to wait. So, let's let's get started. And um, this is a question that I ask everybody who's on the show. Where and how did we meet? Because there, I interview some people that I've known for over 20 years. I've interviewed some that I barely know for 20 weeks. And you and I fall someplace in the middle. Five or six years ago, we met. I had been hearing about you. You were? Yeah. Who from, was talking about me? Well, HR Britain. Oh, yes. HR and Britain. And HR, I was doing, at that point, my storytelling was, which was supporting me quite nicely, was all folk and fairy tales and literature and history, and I wanted to get into personal stories. Mm. And HR said, I think he had just moved to Boston. Yeah, I think it was when he moved to Boston. Oh, then that he moved to Boston in uh, early 2009, so it's yeah. that long ago. So, so yeah. that, that's, that's, eight, that's, over, that's almost nine years ago. Yeah, so, wow. but he started talking about you. I, don't, I didn't meet you. For a while, but oh, okay. I, he kept saying, "You well, if you want to do that, this is who you should get to know. This is who you." I mean, he had 
I, I think it was you and Sherry. Oh, yeah, um, Sherry Weaver. Weaver, and yeah. He says, you've got to meet her. You've got to meet her. You'll really like her. You'll really like her. And we met um, because we both went to the United Solo show of Lawrence, whose name I now have forgotten, but you oh, know what I'm talking Duddy. about. Oh, Duddy. Yes. No, not Duddy. No, that's his that's wife. That, that's Lynn Duddy. Lawrence Howard. L- Lawrence Howard. And... I looked over and and I just knew that was you. You did? Oh, you probably had seen my picture or something. No. I really? just knew. Really? From sort of the way he described you. I hadn't seen picture, but I just I just looked and I and I think I walked over and introduced myself. Yes, I remember. And you said to remember. me the same thing like, "Oh, I've heard about you." Oh my gosh, so I think HR Britain was like trying to set us up? Yes. Wow. On a date. Yes, yes, on a date that's lasted for at least 6 years. Yeah. Yeah, if not I, longer. Yeah, I I think Lawrence Lawrence uh, Howard was doing his uh, Shackleton story. Yes, armchair, armchair, adventures. armchair adventure. Oh my God, Lennon Lawrence, Portland Story Theater. You're getting a shout out. We Woo-hoo! love you. Oh my God, that is so cool. You know, one of the things that I really liked about you when I first met you, and I found it really what I found really interesting was that you made a living doing storytelling. Mm-hmm. And which was the traditional type of storytelling, and the personal kind of storytelling wasn't really paying unless you did like a moth main stage show or something, or so, unless you did a festival, or unless it, which I had no idea existed yet. Um, wait, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So how did how did you meet HR? He was um, he took a class with a friend of mine. Oh, okay. Um, and I was the director at that point of the Storytelling Center of New York City, oh. which was all folk and, and fairy tales. Okay, so it's not the personal storytelling that, that's going on today. It's no. the different kind. Well, people do personal stories. Did they that. do it back then? Yeah. People yeah. have been doing personal stories for longer than the moth has been around. Really? Oh, yeah. Then, so, is, But is it only the moth that like brought it to the forefront of people's consciousness? If, or wh- how, why do you think what do you think, I think that the is? moth I think the moth has better PR and I think that they the people who are doing now I could be wrong so if anybody's listening to this and I'm wrong I'm sorry but I think the moth really made an effort to reach out to people to get them to tell their stories and in these other situations it it was more like festivals or people would do house concerts and it would be there's a performer doing it, so they weren't reaching out to like the public. They were saying, "Come and do out, this," except they weren't saying, "You can do this too." This is part of what you do. So they were saying that we do this, we do this, and the moth was saying, "You can do this." Right. I think that's. Oh. No, I don't know if everybody would agree with that. Okay. But um, I often say things people don't agree well, with. Well, no, because like when I first, I mean, I first started doing the moth before. Long before they blew up in, in the aughts, right? And right. basically, it was once a month at the New Eureka, and sometimes Jennifer Nix, Jennifer Hickson would say, "There's only eight names in this hat. Does, doesn't anybody else want to have a story?" And sometimes she would tell a story, and sometimes Catherine Burns, the executive director or the creative director, um, who would be there oftentimes, she would get up and tell a story, and that was how that was my introduction to storytelling. Thirty years ago. I had a friend who um, who taught, well, she was teaching at the school I had graduated from, this acting school, and we were going to do a personal story. We were going to do a dialogue, a personal dialogue. I think that was my first 
thought about doing personal stories, but I couldn't figure out what I would talk about. And I'm sort of glad I waited and listened and and, so, I, and, and learned from, you know, the folk and fairy tales and all those people, how to structure stories, how to look at a story, the, the feel of a story, the beginning, middle, and end, when you build. I mean, and many people use that, those structures, you know, as the basis of their stories. Jeff Zimmerman teaches with, um, yes, you know, that in that way, the hero's journey. Yeah, because that's that's one of the oldest stories of all mankind. Yeah. That's what Lord of the Rings is. Lord of the Rings is a hero's journey. It's a quest. Well, a lot of stories are. Like, how long have you been doing? How long have you been doing stories? I was trying to figure it out. Um, maybe about twenty-eight years. 27 years. Okay, so like f- and that was from 1990. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I kind of fell into it. I was an actress before. Ah, okay. I was an actress and a director and I just and I was a writer and I would work with kids and write plays based on what they did or what they, you know, either what they made up. Um, it was fun. Oh, cool. Well, we'll get to we'll get back yeah, to that yeah. in a minute, but what I want to know is um uh, you're not a native New Yorker, you're, but you're East Coast, correct? I'm East Coast. I grew up on the Jersey Shore. Oh, Jersey Shore. Yeah, so, I'm from the real, so, I'm the real Jersey Shore. So, not w- like those people. W- would you be a Snooky? Or would you be a JWoww? Uh, or would you be an Angelina? None of those people. Do you know who they rep- are? Yeah, none okay. of them are represented. Did you used to watch? Did you used to watch no. that show? Oh my god! So how no. do you know who they are? Because how can I avoid it? <laughs> and because well, because I watch enough of them. I mean, they're the kind of people who would come to the Jersey Shore, but people who live on the shore oh, got are it. different. Yes, I know what you mean. It's like people that live out east on, yeah. on Long Island, like live in the Hamptons, right? Like, it's like they're the townies, and then the people that come in are the people that, that get their eyes rolled at and like yeah, get, yeah. Get, get, get out of here. Oh, yeah. like the, yeah. yeah. So it's exactly the same thing. I mean, those yeah. are the people who rent places and are annoying. Um, I think I them... think the storyteller Sean O'Brien is an, is another uh, Jersey Shore uh, really? native. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta meet this person. Yeah, yeah. You should have him tell a long form story. Sean he's, O'Brien. Sean O'Brien. He's pretty oh, cool. I know Sean. He, and he makes his own beef jerky. Oh, I love him already. Oh, it's delish. It's delish. Okay, so okay, so you so you grew up as a native Jersey Shore in what town? Oakhurst. Oakhurst. Okay. Huh? And um, did you come from a performer or literary type of writerly? family or did you just like get your creativity just like from chromosome uh 14g or something my family was considered Beatty, the Beatties. everybody knew us my brother was going to be the first jewish president so you were notorious so we were all notorious awesome. we were we were well loved oh like notorious big notorious Beatty. you, you got <laughs> like that notorious Beatty. oh my god that's going to be my other name. Oh, that is so cool. That's a great stage name. But yeah, we were all... My younger sister is um, is a puppeteer. Oh, awesome. And she's done that for her whole life. The way I did theater my whole life until I got involved with storytelling, and then I switched. So you always... Did you always want to be an actor when you always. were young? Were you the type of kid that would do like performances in the living room and run around with a hairbrush? Um, yeah. We all did. Well, you guys. I mean, are... my entire family would do that. Oh wow! So, you, you, like, your mom and dad would mom. run around not with hairbrushes. No, <laughs> no, but my dad, not my dad, but my mom. We put on. Well, this is. I'm older than you, so we would put on records 
I know what we, records are. I know, just in case. But we'd put them on and we'd sing and act. So wait, so you, did your mom have aspirations to be a performer? Was she thwarted? My mom, do you know who the group theater is? The group theater? No. Okay, so some people would say that the quintessential American style acting was formulated among this group of, of actors in New York called the group theater. Harold Klerman, um, Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler. Oh, okay. I didn't know. I didn't know. Like, this goes back to the 20s and the 30s. So the group theater, um, so when my mom was growing up, for a while they worked out of Henry, they, they had this beautiful theater at Henry Street Settlement, and they used that theater. So your mom was a native New Yorker? So my mom was a native New Yorker. Both my parents were. Oh, okay. From um, where? Were they from Brooklyn? They were, well, no, from the Lower East Side. Oh, oh my or, God. But now we call it the East Village. Props and props and props. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Children what? of immigrants. I mean, they were both, one side of the family came from Russia, the other side came from Romania. Wow. Romania? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's the wacko side. Yeah, well, you I know. I hope you're all hearing. Ev- ev- everybody's got everybody's got something about them that's wackadoo, you know. The Russians and, are the nuts, people, and Romanians are just artists. I mean, my family is filled with artists oh, of all kinds. Cool. One of my cousins was a well-known cabaret singer. Um, Name? Andrea Markovici. That's one. She's your cousin? Yeah. For real? From like, I, I mean, know who she many, is. Yeah. I, I, I've heard the name. And wow. Painters and photographers and dancers. So you guys were encouraged to like be wackadoo. Yeah, we were encouraged. So I went, was, I went to Antioch College for God's sake. Oh yeah, I mean that, that had a reputation like in the nineties. I don't even know. I can't even imagine what it was like in the seventies. Oh my God. It was like the whole dorm would be tripping. Wow. Antioch. Um, Antioch is like a college full of firsts. It was the first college to integrate. It was the first college to have women um, along with, with men. Is that true? Yeah. What what year was that? Do you know? A long time ago. In, it's in Ohio. Um, it's the first one to do work-study programs. It's the first college to ha- have men and, and women share the same dormitories. Really? So What year was that? When I was in there, it was in the 70s. Um, it, when I came to Antioch, when it rained, everybody would take their clothes off in the summer and go go running around in the rain. Naked? Oh, yeah. Fun. And, but I was going to say, the Ohio <laughs> farmers used to come and watch it. Oh, snap. So, I mean, they would come anyway to watch the crazies. You know, I mean, it was, I mean, Antioch, it was in this beautiful little town of Yellow Springs. It was the drug capital of the Midwest, but it was also, it was founded by Horace Mann. And, you know, the what he said is, be ashamed to, to die before you have taken one step to improve humankind. Huh. I've so, heard that saying. Yeah, I, I didn't say that correctly, but... But no, I've heard, I mean, you're probably paraphrasing it, but I, I, I've yeah. heard of that. I mean, Horace, Google it, Google it. Google that. Horace Mann was an incredible man. And, you know, I mean, Antioch kind of flipped out, but, I mean, it was, you know, it was a, a, a center of civil rights in Ohio, in that area. It was, a, it was um, I mean, uh, Coretta, Coretta King went there. Scott King went there. All sorts of really interesting people. Wow. Wow. I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't realize that it had that history. I know in the, in the 90s, it was also noted for different 
progressive ideas, things, ideas, and 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 uh, the ways that people interacted with each other. Well, this, so it's the, a long history of it. So they're the first oh, people no who said. Men and women, boys and girls, when they're before you have sex, you have to ask. Yes, I mean, and people made consent, consent, and people made fun of it, right, for years. But well, and and, and it, now we're doing it. And now uh, look what's happening today. Yeah, look what's happening in, in, in at, at the end of twenty seventeen. I just mean that it's it's crazy to think that like this idea was was spawned going on thirty years ago, and like now it's finally come to the forefront. Antioch. The biggest gift it gave me, well, number one, it allowed me to break free of this very small town mentality I had. We came from a very small town, um, number one. And number two, it allowed me to drop out. You know, it, it gave, I, the first decision I think I ever made in my life was to drop out of college. And it was the right decision. I was not mature enough. I didn't want to be there. I wanted to do theater. And that's what I did. I dropped out. And I would never even... I mean, I was the kind of girl who did what I thought I was supposed to do. Um, it would never have occurred to me. Well, person from your generation, that's what you did. because that's what you did. Because you... Would you consider yourself a hippie? Sort of, yeah. Kind of, okay, so that that's the generation... I mean, as a baby boomer, right? Yeah. That's the generation where all that stuff started changing because before then it was all conformist, like 1950s stuff, right? right? I, I mean, mean I'm, I don't know. No, it's exactly true. I mean, when I came, my friends, you know, probably did some drugs, did drugs and they drank a lot, and I didn't do any of that until I left for college. But in the years that after I left, it like flooded my town, my little town. And that changed. Wow. You know, and it was so that was the time that everything was breaking. Yeah, every, yes, yeah. All the um, the the student protests that went on in multiple cities. I mean, Stockholm and Amsterdam and Paris and London and and here and other places and riots all over the United States. People thought that they must have thought that the world was going to end. Like, what what was it like to be to be a sentient human being then and a young person coming of age and going through that? Well, before I went to Antioch, I was pretty... I didn't know most of that. I was pro-Vietnam War. I was... Um, I mean, I, I, I was... I wasn't politicized. I mean, I believed in peace, and I believed in civil rights, and everybody was equal. But I lived in a town where, you know, only the last, whatever, 20 years that they let Jews in to say nothing about black people. Or anybody else, right? So, I mean, pe people sometimes forget that um, Jews were discriminated against a lot in early and mid-century, twentieth-century oh, America. Oh my God! And yeah. still yeah. are. Yeah. My um, my uncle gave all my cousins and was going to give to my father names, new names, so they didn't sound Jewish when they were going yeah, to the workforce. I mean, you know, it 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 it's just a cycle, which hopefully. In the next couple of years, that's going to break about hating people and discriminating against people because you're this or that or the other thing. You know, ugh, it's just. Anyway, back to art. Um, once when you dropped, when you got out of Antioch and you decided you wanted to be an an actor. I did well. Uh, did I went come... to I went to Chicago. I did. Oh, you street... went to Chicago. I okay. went. That was what I did. I dropped out of college. I went to Chicago. I joined a street theater company there called Rapid Transit Guerrilla Communications. Oh, cool! And it was cool. I have pictures I'll show you sometime. We did stuff in the streets. And and then we started touring. But we, you know, we did stuff about racism and sexism and 
we talked about white privilege even back then. Um, so you were doing original plays, not like plays that had been written before. No, we did. We we wrote them ourselves. Oh, anti-Vietnam. That's what I mean. Original yeah. plays. Yeah, like, and yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we wrote them as a group often. Oh, cool. So it was like political. It was all political. Cool. And uh, we had a women's theater, because the women's movement. I mean, I finally discovered what the women's movement. So this was, was in the early seventies. This then. was in the early seventies. Um, and I moved to Chicago in the winter, the coldest time you could be there. I was picked up by two people in a car that had no bottom and no heat. You mean like a Flintstones car? Yeah, pretty much. So that, yes, they picked me up. It was pretty scary. I wasn't sure what I'd gotten into. Okay. Yeah. So how long did you stay in Chicago? I stayed there five years, and then I came to New York to go to acting school. Oh, what school did you go to? I went to NYU to the professional actor tr- uh, Tisch. training program. Tisch School of the Arts? It was Tisch. But it was then the MFA program was also a BFA program if you could get in, and right. I got in. Right, because you had dropped out of Antioch, so you ended as an undergrad. I was there as an undergrad, but they were again. It was this particular program which was became the graduate program. Oh, okay, cool. So, so, so it was both. So you so just went in and you could then. do both. You can yeah. get both. And okay. I could have gotten such the dumbest thing I ever did. I could have gotten a master's by writing one damn paper. I was afraid to, to write it. Oh, I hate that. I know. You I, sabotage yourself in so I many different ways. I just was afraid. Okay, so um, NYU, and the acting program, and then you, I you started I trying to become an actor, I, like, a, like a legit actor? Yeah, and I didn't like it. I, Why? I, I'll tell you the truth is I don't think I'm emotionally, I mean, this is what I look at. It's like, I'm not really set up to be an actor. Mm. Like, I was pretty good, I think, when I was. Did you did you do any theater? Did you get any parts? I did. Yeah, I did theater and I got parts. But you know, I'm just like this person who. I mean, I started wanting to like tell people what I wanted them to do. It's like I didn't take direction as well as I should have. Let's just put it that way. I'm not a big. If it doesn't make sense to me, it takes me a while to make it mm. work. And. Um, so how long did you fight this fight about, like, I'm trying to be an actor before you were just two like... Two years. Oh, that's all. That was all. I, hey, I, so some people do it for, like, two decades. Well, I mean, I will say I kept fighting it, but then I, I went to the 92nd Street Y and I formed... I, I created a, a youth theater project. Oh, when was this? This was in 1980. No, 78. Mm. No, 79. And how, I mean, how did you get into it? I mean, did you just make it up or was this an existing thing that you I made got it into? Up. I, I went over there and I said, this is my idea. Really? And oh, that's, cool. that's my strength. Is, is, that, is that one of the first programs that, that happened in the city? I think I was. I'd, I'd have to wow. look back at that. I, it was just fun. And I'm like I said, one of my strengths is creating programs. Like I like to create programs that uses not just my own abilities, but the, the abilities of other people. So you're, you're, you would say that you're an inherent inherent educator then i'm an inher- yeah i did who knew yeah i'm an educator i think so but i'm a producer yeah but and, i i i yeah. you you have you have a love of teaching you have a love of imparting st- stuff to people so yeah, yeah i think I that i think that you have like that teacher dna that's cool yeah. I, I like that you just like you you went after because a lot of people just like wait for stuff to come to, to them no. but like you just were like i want to do this so you did it i think that's really cool um, so when did you, when and how did you discover the storytelling? 
Well, I, when I was at um, the 92nd Street Y, which was where I did it, mm -hmm. the first theater, um, they kept saying, there's this storytelling woman, you got to meet her. Her name is Penina Schramm. She's like this incredible Jewish storyteller. This? this was in like 82. Oh my God. 83. Wow, wow, wow. And, you know, I went, I met her. I took a class. I thought, this is the easiest thing in the world. She encouraged me, but I was not interested. And, I mean, I just thought it was not very cool. Personal stories, none of that was cool. I was involved in, you know, I was doing my youth theater, but my friends were these cool avant-garde musicians and shit, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to be cool. So you were living in New York. Were you, like, hanging out in the East Village or the West in the Village? In Village. Okay, yeah. But, I was, but my, my circle was very small. It was the, the people, it was musicians, it was people I met, and... You know, I I mean, I let go of my political theater stuff when I came to NYU, but it came back to me, too. But yeah, so I did that, and I, I didn't... And then I had a vocal injury. I, I had vocal nodules, and I had other physical problems and issues, so I took a break. And wow, for how long? For about three years. Wow. It was like... And I became a secretary. For two and a half. I'm still holding myself like this. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. It was the hardest job I ever did and humiliating because I was an artist. And I was the person who gave my stuff to be typed by secretaries. Best lesson I ever had you know, in my so life. Sometimes life hands you a lesson that you need to learn. Oh. You know? What did I learn? I learned, number one, that secretaries are the most important people. Yeah, they know they office. know more than their boss. They know more than their boss, and they're not paid enough. That's correct. Or treated well. That's correct. And I never would ever treat anybody like that ever again. Number two, I learned that I was unhappy mm. when, and I had never been unhappy working before. I hated sucking up to people. I hated having to do things the way people wanted me to. Mm. I didn't care if things matched you know um I just that I just couldn't get into it and and I found it degrading to be ordered about and blamed for things that weren't my problem and so I discovered that being a creative person was not just a thing I could do it was the thing I had to do so what um got you back into it well I started I just I Went to a couple full vocal therapists who helped me and gave me confidence in my voice again. And that was the big thing. And then I had started I had started doing performing for kids. I as as always, I went to Barnes and Nobles, didn't know that they, that they were looking for people to do things, but I walked in and I said, Here's a plan. You don't have to pay me, but I'm gonna come in for four weeks and this is what I'm gonna do for you. And it involved telling stories to kids. Wow, and what when was this? Oh, God. 30 years ago. No, 28 years ago. So, like, 1990, 89. Yeah. Wow. So I walked in, and I... First thing I did was I got books. I was going to read books. This was my... This idea came from... Well, how did you end up getting paid for it? Oh, well, that that's a long story. All right, we're, we're, we're the, the encapsulated version. Okay, so basically, I did it. I walked in. Well, the first thing is I read. I realized that was boring. So I told the story, and I thought that then the next time I brought my guitar, and then I was off to the races. How did I? Well, because I realized I found other people were getting paid, so I thought, I should get paid too. Yeah. 
And I started performing for the New York Public Library, where all they paid was $50. And, well, $50 was, was $50 It wasn't back that then. much. Even back then, it wasn't. Well, it's like $5 now. Well, anyway. Yeah, right. I know. But um, anyway, and that's how I started. And then people, somebody told me I wasn't charging enough. And so I upped my prices. And, and you know, I still don't sure I... I charge right, whatever the fuck. So that's how that you means. started to be to make a living as a storyteller. Right. And I mean, I've always made a living teaching art. Mm. And to me, the teaching and the performing is how I make my living as a as an artist. Right. Because the teaching um, fuels me. Like, you know, I, I, I mean, it's really interesting. Now that I'm doing stories, you know, in you know, personal stories in adult situations, um, that's why I've started teaching adults telling stories. So I'm teaching them how to tell personal stories. So let's talk about that segue a little bit. What was, would you say, would be your entree or your segue into doing the moth type of storytelling you? that people know as storytelling today? Was Me? you. Really? You know how I tell you sometime that you're my first friend in this you were. were. I didn't realize. And you took me to see people, and you told me what to do, and you gave me courage. And um, Oh, my God. I mean, I'd gone to the moth, and I hadn't liked it for all the same reason. A lot of my buddies and the other part of it didn't, oh, you only do five minutes, and it's competitive and all that. And, um, and I was convinced I was better than everybody, you know, because you're an artist, you're arrogant. Um, but I still was holding on to that the kind of not learning arrogance where you think you're better. Um, but then I think when I started hanging out with you, I started seeing what people did. For someone who came into the neo world of storytelling, kicking and screaming, haha, now she is just such a champion of it. She has been for the past five years hosting storytelling uh, concerts in her living room called Baby House Story Concerts, where she will host four storytellers, one from out of town, three from New York, and everybody gets to do a long form thing. They get to do up to 30 minutes, up to 30 minutes each. I've been to some, many of these. I performed in a couple of these. Let me tell you that this living room is like freaking full to the rafters and the performers get paid. So that is just one of the biggest blessings in the storytelling community for us to be able to get paid to do our art. And I just like, I'm so grateful for you for doing this. You're such a go-getter. It's fun, number one. I mean, I hate preparing and I hate cleaning up, but I like everything else. Let's talk a little bit about uh, theater and, and producing. Um, this past summer, you um, got the idea to do a show in Ashenovic's, um uh, Speak Up, Rise Up Festival. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that was called No, I Won't Shut Up. Or no, wait, No, We Won't Shut Up. Um, well, I had, I, I just knew I, I really liked, I like what Asher does. I have such respect for him and such regard. He just, you know, put, always puts his, his money where his mouth is. Um, I just thought, you know, what, what do I want to see? I mean, I often think this like, if I don't see something, then and I want to want to see it, then it's my job to make it happen, and that's how I think of it. So I knew I wanted to do women, um, though there are many good, one amazing storytellers who are men. 
I knew that with everything that's been going on, particularly with Trump, my cat has just joined us, that I wanted to do a show where women got to speak about what happened in their life that they just don't want to be quiet about anymore. So that's why I called it No, We Won't Shut Up. And I asked different women who I knew had a good story or knew were good performers. So you have another history of doing solo performance. How did yeah. you how did you segue from storytelling to solo performance? Let's I, I think of it as the same thing. Oh, you okay. Know, well, well because solo when, performance would be like a long form, like an hour story. Oh, I know. Okay. But you know, I do when I do um performances, mostly for children, though also for adults with folklore, you put together an hour, an hour and a half program. So I'm used oh, to being okay. on stage for that long. Um, I I also work with musicians. I have two fabulous musicians um, that I, I work with. So I'm used to being on stage for a long time and having to take mm. that. And I don't know, like I said, in 19... Oh, gosh. 90, I was already thinking about... Oh, no, it was, it was 1980s. I was thinking about doing this with my friend where it would be a solo solo a, a duo performance personal story thing and I have this story that came up and basically it came up because I have this letter that I received um, I'm not going to go it's going to be part of my story so you're going to hear it in the story but this letter let's just say it was something that anyone who knew how involved I was in radical politics would have been surprised to, to note that I have this letter. So you're going to say, would it be would it be correct to say that your radical politics have fueled your performance like for your whole uh, career um, so far? Since the 80s, yes. Wow. So um, And that was the other reason I got out of theater. It was like, I just thought, I don't want to do any of this stuff. Well, a little kitty, I, I don't want to say little birdie because I have a kitty on me now. A little kitty says that you have a story that you're going to share for us right now. So why, why, don't, we, uh, why don't we do that? Okay, and this is the first part of my solo show. Oh, okay. So this is an excerpt from Robin Beatty's latest solo show, which is called... Nancy Drewinsky and the Search for the Missing Letter. When I was in fourth grade, I had an epiphany. I knew what I was going to do for the rest of my life. You see, in that cl in class that day, we'd seen this very interesting film about an important federal agency that goes after and catches the really bad guys. I was inspired, and I wanted to be just like them. I knew that I, too, should be part of that search for truth and justice and the American way. Yes, my friend, I want to be an FBI agent. Well, it makes perfect sense. Well, you didn't know me in fourth grade, but trust me. If you knew then, me then, it would have made perfect sense. Number one. I am smart and determined, and you can ask anyone about that. Number two, I do well in school in all my subjects. Number three, I am great at puzzles. I love to figure things out. And number four, probably the most important thing of all, I'm intrusive. See? 
I've got everything. I've got the perfect skill set. I am also a self-starter, so I wrote a letter to the agency describing who I was, what I did, and what I was looking forward to doing in my future. And here's the amazing part. Not four weeks went by before I received a reply. Here, let me read it to you. United States Department of Justice, Federal Bureau of Investigation, Washington 25, D.C., November 15, 1960. Dear Robin, your letter of November 6, 1960 has been received and it is a pleasure to hear from you. I get lots of letters from boys and girls, but I believe you are the very first one to write a poem about the FBI. Your work shows great talent and I am pleased that you chose to write about us. Oh, that poem? It was long. It was amazing. I'll give you the first verse. Oh, to be in the FBI, looking for criminals on land, sea, and sky, searching for justice steadfastly. Why? The FBI is the place for me. Okay, I can't give you the rest. Let me read you the rest of the letter, though. It is certainly commendable for young people to take an interest in law and order, as you are doing by being a member of your school safety patrol. However, as you already know, only men can be special agents. Wait a minute. Only men can be special agents for the FBI. However, we do have many excellent positions available to women, such as secretary and file clerk, and I am enclosing an article which contains information in greater detail concerning those jobs. Oh, here's the cool part. Very sincerely yours, Jay, I mean it, Edgar. I hope you're impressed. Hoover! J. Edgar Hoover! For real! He wrote me! He's the legendary director of the FBI. He founded the modern FBI, and he wrote me. I was so impressed by myself. And then, and then that second part of the letter came back to me. What was he talking about? Women not being agents? Why not? That wasn't fair. And how could that be? I mean, didn't he know about that teenage girl who solved mysteries effortlessly with the help of her faithful friends, Bess and George, and her boyfriend, that good-looking Ned? I had read and reread every book in the series. Everybody respected her. I mean, didn't he know about Nancy Drew? <sighs> well, I was disappointed, but not discouraged. Because deep in my heart, 
I knew that this was not the end. That someday, somehow, somewhere, I too would use my skills and, like Nancy, I would uncover a mystery that needs me to solve it. That's awesome. Oh my Thank God, you. I can't wait to see the whole thing. It's um, You're going to be intense. doing it again in 2018, right? I don't know where, but yes. Okay, yeah, well, we're almost at the end of 2017 yeah. here, so, so we, have, we, have to, we have to think ahead. We have, I had, well, I'm going to be in a couple fringes. I know that. Oh, that's great. Maybe okay. the Philadelphia fringe, if I can figure out, and the indie fringe, and I'm just starting to apply to fringes. Um, yeah, I really, I, I love it. I had four shows, and each one, the story changed. Well, of course just it does. Just a little. Of course, of uh, well, course. I was shocked well, it morphs, at how much. It morphs. It morphs. It's, it's a living thing. When, it when, was when amazing. You, when, when you create a solo show, when you create any story, to me, it's a living thing. It's 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 not static. It's not dead. It's a living thing. So it always it always evolves and grows. And that's one of the reasons why I love storytelling mm. because it's it's a living art. Yes, that's what it is. It's a living art. So um, if people want to follow you or n learn more about your fabulousness and your um, Beatty House concerts, how can they find you? They should go on Facebook and look for Beatty House Storytelling Concert. I think it's concert. Um, and find the page. You can find me on Facebook also. I have a, a website for Nancy Drewinsky. It's called, it's nancydrewinsky.com. Great. And I'll be posting that. And I have a website that I just have not gotten around to updating, but you can see what I do in terms of folklore. Is that robinbeatty.com? Robinbeatty.com. Are you on Twitter and IG? I'm on Twitter and Instagram now. Okay. All right, all right. Uh, so, um, in closing, I always ask this question of everybody. Like, I always open with, like, how do we meet? So, this is a question that I ask everybody at the end uh, of the interview. So, if you could say one thing to the child sitting alone in thought in their bedroom, on the dock of the bay, daydreaming out the window in their classroom, doing their chores, who really wants to be an artist they aspire but people all around them are telling them that's not what they should expect to do hmm. what would you tell them follow your own voice listen to your own voice and just do it just do it you know there's nothing what i keep learning over and over again there's nothing more important than listening to myself and then making it happen. So there's two parts. One is the dream, and then the second part is the work. From the mouth of a go-getter. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and a life worth living and examining. Thank you, Robin, oh, for being a fish out of Argo. Hug in the air. I love you. We haven't worked this one up, but we don't care. Riding on the city of New Orleans Illinois Central Monday morning rain Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Three conductors and twenty-five sacks of men 
Out on the southbound Odyssey, the train pulls out of Kankakee and rolls past houses and farms and bees. As some towns that have no name and freight yards full of old black men in the graveyards of the rusted automobiles. Just a saying, good morning, America, how are ya? Hey, don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans. I'll be gone 500 miles when day is done. Dealing cards with the old men in the club car. It's many a point, ain't nobody keeping score. Pass that paper bag that holds a bottle. Feel the wheels crumbling beneath the floor. And the sons of Pullman porters and the sons of engineers Cry their daddy's magic carpet made of steam And mothers with the babes asleep go rocking to the gentle beat And the rhythm of the rails so they dream Singing good morning America, how are ya? Hey, don't you know me, I'm your native son train they call the city of New Orleans. I'll be going 500 miles when day is done. Time on the city of New Orleans. We're changing cars in Memphis, Tennessee. It's halfway home and we'll be there by morning. Through the Mississippi darkness rolls into the sea. But all the towns and people seem to fade into a bad dream. And the steel rail still ain't heard the news. The conductor sings that song again It's passengers, oh please refrain it This train has got the disappearing railroad blues Just a saying, good night America, how are ya? Hey, don't you know me, I'm your native son I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans I'll be going 500 miles when day is done Singing good night, America, how are ya? Hey, don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans. And I'll be gone a long, long time when day is Thank you. Can we teach you one? This is, this is, this is a... And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That song was 
City of New Orleans by folk singer Steve Goodman from the Judith album in 1975, another of Robin's picks for this episode. Yeah, folkies, stories, politics. Boy, that's that's some life Robin's had, and I'm so glad that she's telling stories. The next Beatty House concert, be on the lookout for it in 2018. Well, kids, you know what time it is now. That's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. If you like this show or any other of the fine shows on Radio Free Brooklyn, consider sponsoring us. Just go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com, click on the Donate tab, and do what it says. Support living artists. Yes, that is a good thing. Okay, so we're going to um, close with Sarah Vaughan, just one of those things from the compilation album in 1992, the last of um, Robin's picks. And stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next. And we'll see you next week. Woohoo! Just one of those things